Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hale as I, Lentesta. And this is our second show for December 2015. And as we've been doing for more than a year now, this episode is part of our Chronological Disneyland series. As you remember, in the last episode, Disney had just gone through a long proxy fight that resulted in the installation of Michael Eisner as CEO. And here to continue that story is the man whom, if Disney knowledge was a crime, we would call him felonious monk, Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Prisoner of love, good ties above, can't keep our hearts in jail. Hi, Len. I'm having a wonderful holiday season. How are you, Len? Oh, it's been great. I've been listening to the Peanuts Christmas special all week at work, and we, we really have to do a show on that, because that's, that's really a great special. I know it's not Disney-related, but but we've got to do a show. There's a lot of great stories, and the Vince Guaraldi music is amazing. That's been part of my life since 65. Back then, there were like only two specials. You had Rudolph, you had Charlie Brown, and you had Grinch, and it was the, the holy trinity, so to speak. And they are. I mean, those are my, my three go-to Christmas specials. In fact, you know the uh, the Frosty, the Snowman Christmas special? It's a fine cartoon, but I look at that as sort of the, the cheap knockoff of other Christmas specials. It's it's not in the the same position as the uh, as the other three. In fact, I don't I don't know if you saw this, but there's a Christmas commercial out now that uses the claymation Rudolph as part of the commercial. And and the first time I saw that, my heart broke a little bit, you know, because that part of my childhood, I think, shouldn't be commercialized. And I only have that feeling about those three cartoons. I'm okay with a Peanuts movie, but but you can't put Rudolph in a commercial. Well, you're, you're not going to like this because next year, uh, in fact, they announced it, I want to say, a month or two ago. But they are doing a 3D, and I think it's going to be IMAX, version of Rudolph with the whole notion of they use the stylization that the Rankin-Bass uh, things do. It's now, you know, I want to be a dentist only 10 stories tall and in 3D. <laughs> The upside of that is, think how many children will be traumatized by the bumble that big. I've been working the bumble out since 64. He really got to me. Well, there's that. Maybe we can get a a theme park ride out of this. All right. And uh, so speaking of um, theme park rides, I finally watched Jurassic World. And? You know, it's it's sort of a predictable movie, but you, you remember that scene where they're in the blue ball? And I'm thinking to myself... This is the point in the script where the ride engineers look at the movie and say, this is where we need a theme park attraction to go. Am am I wrong? Let's put it this way, that I would say in the not-too-distant future, especially for Islands of Adventure in Florida, you're going to see some very interesting stuff start to bubble up. Because, face it, the Jurassic World, based on the box office this year, became a trilogy. There's two more films being prepped. They'd love to have the park application. So, yeah, the interesting thing is when you talk with people in the ride community, it's just sort of like, hmm, okay, so that's location-based and we need, you know, and it's just, you don't have a, how did you like the movie? Well, you know, I, I, in order to build that ride system, we need to put, you know, the sensors here and there. Ah, oh, that's that's exactly it. And it, in fact, it's uh, it's funny because whenever I watch these summer blockbuster movies now, 
in the back of my mind, I'm always looking at it and saying, okay, that's the part that they want to be the theme park ride. I, I, I suppose that's some sort of occupational hazard, but, uh, but that's how it goes. It's, right. and it, and it's so interesting you bring that up because that is actually a big part of what we're talking about today. The, the, the weird period in the 1980s at Disney where they just weren't making movies that, A, were making decent box office. And face it, in an era when a, you know, an E.T. comes out and does big, big, big box office and you've got Herbie Goes Bananas. But, but the weird thing is the Imaginary still tried. I mean, I have seen the artwork for the Herbie ride, which reached back to the 1969 film where, as the attraction ended, the Herbie split in half. And so there were people who were sitting in the up front and people in the back, and suddenly they're competing against one another. And when we get to 1985, things have gotten so bad for the Disney company that the only way they're getting people to really get excited and really come out to the park for Disneyland's 30th anniversary is to give away stuff. So if you walked up to the park during the year of 1985, out front of the Anaheim theme park was the gift giver extraordinaire, this giant machine that, that doled out thousands of prizes and had, had kind of an interesting gimmick. All of the prizes sort of keyed off of iterations of three. So if you were the 30th guest to push through a turnstile, you'd get a, a Disneyland Unlimited pass. Or if you were the 300th guest, you got a set of Mickey and Minnie plush every three thousandth guest got a commemorative watch and then it got interesting you know that that if you were the thirty thousandth guest you got a pontiac sunbird or if you preferred a wow a chevrolet cavalier and then over the week they would give away a buick century or a cutlass and every three million guests they gave away a cadillac sedan deville this was such a successful promotion at Disneyland, they moved it to Disney World in 86 for that park's 15th anniversary. And, and in that case, it was every 15 seconds rather than keying off of, you know, so any guest going into the kingdom or the or Epcot Center, every 15 seconds, somebody was going to get something. So same thing. You had 5,000 prizes per day, every day for a full year. You look at the list now and it really is kind of, you know, it's like, wow, a VHS tape. Oh, boy. Or, or. Or a, cas a cassette tape of Michael Jackson's music. Or, or you'll love this, Lynn. If you actually won tickets to the park, your choices were Magic Kingdom, Epcot Center, or Discovery Island. Oh, I would take a Discovery Island ticket right, right now. And, and then the other prizes there, well, there was a U.S. savings bond. Or, and again, it gives you some idea where we're in Disneyland history. Same thing. You could win a car, a brand new Chev uh, Cavalier, or you could take a cruise on Premier Cruise Line. That was back when Disney didn't have its own boats and they did the big red boat. You know, I was on a I was on a Disney cruise last week and I met someone whose first Disney cruise was on the big red boat. And we we, we talked about this on a on a previous episode, right? We should uh, we should revisit that episode. Okay, so so we're in the mid-80s. Disney is doing this special promotion to bring people into the parks, right? You, you will love this part of the story, okay? So the locals in Anaheim <laughs> catch on to this. And the gift giver extraordinaire faces into the parking lot with an active tote board. What Disneyland found was this weird phenomena leaped up where... Annual pass holders would sit outside the park and wait and watch when it got close to one of the, the big threes. So the 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 three thousand, the thirty thousand, or the three hundred thousand. And so as soon as that number got close, they'd get in line and go into the park. You know that's that's kind of smart though, because your your odds probably went from one in many thousands to like 
one in a, a few dozen to, to win a prize. I know a bunch of folks who have piles of the Mickey plush that was done that year, or a friend of mine has five of the collectible wristwatches that she personally got by pushing through. She said, you know, the great thing was that if you waited till like two or three o'clock in the afternoon, the cast members are working the gate like, oh God, you again. Because you're going <laughs> to just sort of sit there like five, four, three, two, boom, in line. And hey, give me my watch. But anyway, uh, over this period of time, Disney gave away 500 General Motors cars to guests. And the total prize package stuff, uh, I think, was, was $20 million. But again, think about it. This is how they had to get people into the parks because they didn't have anything. And meanwhile, they're looking to be innovative. They're looking to change out the park and put new stuff in. And, and some of the changes during this period were weirdly counterintuitive. I mean, for example, when you're bringing new technology into the park, Lynn, would your first thought be, let's go to the shooting gallery? No. <laughs> the weird thing is there were three guys who worked at Disneyland who worked the midnight shift, and their job every night was to go into each of the shooting galleries and repaint all of the targets because of the lead pellets they were shooting. So in the mid-80s, they were still using lead pellets? At least once a day, someone would end up going to Disneyland's first aid office because they had been hit by a ricochet. Yeah, I was going to ask, has uh, no one shot their eye out? It's this combination of... If we change over to this electric eye beam technology, first of all, we can lay those three guys up. Second of all, you know, we can make these nuisance lawsuits go away, and we still keep the revenue that we get from the shooting galleries. That, oddly enough, was one of the first places it came in. Speaking of Disneyland trying to change up and be exciting and be new, September 2nd, 1985, Adventures Through Inner Space closes down the Mighty Microsoft which was filled with automobiles, some of which, by the way, uh, you can see on display in the Disney archive, ripped out to make room for a brand new cutting-edge theme park experience. To tell this story, we have to jump back two years, when the Imagineers were just giving Disney such grief about the fact that, look, we're not making movies that people want to go to, which means we have nothing to base new ride shows and attractions for the parks on. To be fair, they've come up with some really good theme park rides that weren't based on movies. For example, most of the Epcot rides, not based on, on movies. Yeah, uh, and let's be honest here. I mean, Space Mountain, uh, Big Thunder Mountain. Pirates of the Caribbean, they had a movie out on that. So they, they can do it. It's just not as uh, easy. You won't draw people in as easily as if it was tied to a movie and already had some sort of you know built-in marketing around it. The danger of doing a standalone is that you've only got so much time in line to explain to people the world you're entering and, and what's about to happen and that sort of thing. Whereas when you, you base it on a known property, I mean, you're hitting the ground running. It's like when you go to Universal, who doesn't you know, who walks up to the, the, the Transformers, the ride 3D, and it's like giant robot on roof. And the entire time you're in the queue, they're feeding you the story and you're in, you go. That sort of economy, especially given what was going on in the theme park world in the 80s going into the 90s. If you ask people nowadays, what's their favorite Disney theme park attractions, they will say things like Pirates of the Caribbean or Haunted Mansion or Small World, which are these slow-moving attractions that move you through these hyper-detailed environments. Also today, if you ask a guest... 
did you get your money's worth at a Disney theme park when you visited? The question then becomes, well, how many rides did you manage to get on? And you know from your work with the, the unofficial guide that isn't the sweet spot. It's it's between 10 and 12 attractions a day. That's when people say, I got my money's worth. Yeah, 10 is average. Anything over that is a, is a bonus. I totally see your point, though, because the more time you have to spend telling people in line what the background story and material is, the less time you have to, to get them through the ride. All right, so totally understand. Okay, go ahead. Jumping back to 83. So think about this. You're an Imagineer. And this is a year after Tron had opened. And trust me, Glenn, they really (laughs) did prep Tron attractions. In fact, I was just on the phone last week talking with, with somebody who had just seen some footage and was giving me a construction update on the Tron light cycle attraction that's building built to Shanghai. It, it's the fastest thing that's ever been built in a Disney theme park. I want to say it hits 60 miles an hour at launch. All right. Wow. But at the same time, there are elements of this attraction that the Imagineers, when they were working on this thing, they actually reached back to concept art that they had done in 82 for Tron stuff that never got built for the parks. Disney has amazing archives that they constantly reach back to. This is the summer of 83, and you're trying to be competitive. You're trying. This is the summer that National Lampoon's Summer Vacation comes out. Is everyone else singing Holiday Road in their head right now? Everybody who sees that movie thinks, oh, well, Wally World. Okay, I know what they're making fun of and Roy Wally and, you know, isn't this clever and... You have no idea. We've talked about this before, right? Where Disneyland used to be closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. First of all, do yourself a favor, folks. Google Vacation 58. It's written by John Hughes. In fact, last year, out ahead of the release of the new Vacation movie, the one where where, uh, Beverly D'Angelo and Chevy Chase actually came back and played Clark and his wife, and it was their son, Rusty, who was supposedly going to Wallyward, they reprinted this entire story, which the original National Lampoon Vacation movie was based on. And in that movie, in that story that the movie was supposed to be based on, the Griswold family was going to Disneyland, not Wally World. The, uh, the story's in print, right? I can, I can post a link to it on the show notes. Yeah, and supposedly what happened was that John Hughes, who grew up in Michigan and spent most of his life in Illinois, had flown out in the mid-70s to go to Disney. You know, and he was working in L.A. and had a day off. Like, eh, I'm going to go to Disneyland because you got to. You're on vacation in Southern California. So battles bumper-to-bumper traffic out to Anaheim, pulls up to the gate, and there's literally the the, he's picked Monday in September and the park is closed and John is pissed. And so that just rattles around in his head. And so, I mean, seriously, the story actually starts off with the, the vacation 58 with the line, if dad hadn't shot Walt Disney in the leg, it would have been our best vacation ever. Really? It's again, the Hollywood Reporter reprinted the entire story. And I've just picked out a few high points that I know Len will love, like of Disneyland and Walt specific references. So as the family is driving down the five to Anaheim, Rusty exclaims, There it is! I see it! I see it! I screamed as the turns of Cinderella Castle appeared. And the mom is, Oh my God, it's Disneyland. And mom cried and she thanked God and made all of us to give thanks, which we gladly did. And we pulled into the massive parking lot. It was empty. And we have the place to ourselves, Dad announced with a 
a smile that quickly fused into a drooling idiot's frown when he read clothes for repair and cleaning. And there is no God, Mom shouted. No God would treat us like this. The mom literally just loses it. We are in the hands of the devil. We've sinned. We've bathed in sin. And the devil has stolen our souls. And dad now goes and gets a gun. But he doesn't. He drives up into Beverly Hills to go to Walt's house. We stop in front of a rambling mansion surrounded by a high fence. Dad turns off the motor. He loads his revolver and sticks it in his belt. Like, I never knew Dad was in such good shape, but he climbed over the fence like it was a four-year backyard fence. There's a group of men around a swimming pool having some kind of meeting, and Dad crawls on his belly through the flower beds, and then he stood up. I got your number, Disney. I'm Clark W. Griswold, and you owe me. I'll give you to the count of three, Walt Disney, and... Walt's like, can't we talk? You closed your fantasy park, and that was a mistake. <laughs> I'm giving you to the counter three to run. It's like a combination of fantasy and, and Bugs Bunny cartoon, which is which is even funnier because it's not a Disney cartoon. So Warner Brothers acquires the rights to Vacation 58 to make a movie in, in early 1980. The, the story got itself was printed in National Lampoon, September of 79. When they get the rights, they actually reach out to Disney and say, hey, we've got this story. Then there's some relevant relatively short scenes that are set at your theme park. Could, could we maybe come out to Disneyland and shoot them on a Monday or Tuesday when, when the park isn't open? And and the weird part is Disney Legal considers it. To explain why, in 1980, Disney entered into a co-production agreement with Paramount Pictures. In fact, if you know Robin Williams' first starring role in a feature film, Popeye, that's actually a Disney Paramount co-production. I, th I think I actually did know that, and I, I don't know how I know that. Maybe through osmosis. And the weird thing is, the, the way the deal worked, Paramount got to release the film in North America. They had the domestic distribution rights, where Disney had the picture worldwide. To Disney's way of thinking, this was great, because they had such good, strong international ties. And in fact, they, it was a two-picture deal. They, 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 you may be familiar with the Dragon Slayer, which was a kind of a medieval fantasy film. Lucasfilm did the, the special effects for it. Uh, what year was that? That was 81, summer 81. When did Dune come out? Because I, I kind of remember the early 1980s as being, okay, a lot of John Hughes films, but also about these sort of like fantasy Dune type movies. Dune is actually early 80s. That's, that's David Twin Peaks. David Lynch. David Lynch, yeah. He did Dune, really? Yeah. That, that explains so much. Yes, yes, it does. Okay, never mind. All of my questions are answered now. Okay. You know, just let me say, well, we have the deal with Paramount. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have the similar sort of deal with Warner? So sure, send the story over. And so they do. And <laughs> on Monday, the legal department calls, and it's like, not only can't you shoot at Disneyland, you are, <laughs> you are taking every Disney reference out of this, or we will sue you back into the Stone Age, which is, explains Wally World and Roy Wally and all that. So anyway, getting back to summer of 83. So this is, this is a Disney company that's trying to put the Herbie's Go Bananas and the Apple Dunkling gangs right again behind them. And they really have put together a more ambitious slate. They've got an adult romantic comedy called Trenchcoat, and they've got the dark fantasy uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And if you haven't seen it yet, the Carol Ballard movie Never Cry Wolf is wonderful. I haven't seen it. But, you know, it's, just, it's all shot up in the Arctic. It's just this beautiful film that Disney spent the time and the money to do right. And But at this point, the Disney brand is so 
toxic that nobody wants to go to their movie. If it has a Disney name on it, they don't want to do it, which, again, is one of the reasons they set up Touchstone, because they wanted adults to actually want to go to Disney films. So anyway, the, the Imagineers are just pushback, pushback, pushback. It's like, guys, we need stuff for the parks. Finally, they get a hold of Ron Miller and say, look, you and Diane just bought that place up in Napa. They set up the Silverado Vineyard as the family home and sort of a, a side business for Ron and Diane that wasn't directly tied to the Disney company, just so they'd have something of their own. And it's like, you're basically over the hill from Skywalker Ranch. Call George Lucas and ask him to come over to the house, invite him to dinner, and just casually bring up, hey, would you like to do something for the parks? To give Ron Miller credit, that's exactly what he did. Can you imagine the inner dialogue that you have to have with yourself in order to approach George Lucas to do it, to do a ride in your theme park? It's like, hey, George, can I can I top off your drink there? And oh, by the way, would you like to build us a ride for the theme park? It's like, hey, how are those kebabs? And uh, oh, C-3PO. They did have it in their, their back pocket the fact that George's family went to Disneyland the first day it was open to the public. I mean, everyone knows the big party on July 17th for the press and celebrities, but the first day is it's open for the public. George and his family are there, and they would go back every year. He's a he's a huge Disney fan, They've and they've got some goodwill there. All right, okay, got it. Yeah, he says yes but just to underline here he said yes to ron miller not michael eisner this was a full year before miller was forced out and then eisner became the new chairman and ceo of disney so did lucas and eisner have a relationship before eisner got to disney they did in fact there's a very famous story about spielberg had finished jaws and you have to remember that jaws went a hundred days over schedule and was ridiculously over budget and spielberg was convinced his career was going to end. So when the movie opened, he was in Hawaii. He actually put himself as far away from Hollywood as he could. And he's on the beach. And, you know, people would walk down the beach. And, you know, he's sitting there making sandcastles. And it made this much money today. I want to make this much money today. And they're carrying phones because everyone from Hollywood wants to get a hold of him. Spielberg is now in Lucas's universe. He's working on uh, the developing Close Encounters as the follow-up. And he knows about Star Wars. And George is facing the same sort of pressure from 20th Century Fox. And Spielberg's like, I know exactly what you got to do. Come with me. We're going to Hawaii. It worked once. So they go to Hawaii. The two of them are on a beach making sandcastles together. And they proceed to talk about what would you do if this is a huge hit. If... Jaws is a huge hit, or if Close Encounters is a huge hit? Star Wars is a, is a hit. And, and you have to understand that, that Spielberg is now using his sort of equity of what happened with Jaws to get Close Encounters made. And so the two of them start talking about, you know, well, what'd you do? The two of them admit, like, well, I'd love to make a James Bond movie, but there's no way they'd let us. Broccoli's are very controlling. And oh, we've we've got to do an episode on uh, on James Bond and the Broccoli family, because that is like a uh, medieval Borgia family level of intrigue right there. That's that's a family with, uh, with a lot of great stories. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, yeah. That's actually Lights Motor Action at the studios. That was originally a James Bond stunt show. Uh, all right, so Spielberg and Lucas are talking, and... and and they're like, "I'd love to make a Bond movie, but they won't allow us. So, wouldn't it be cool if we had a character like that?" And that's where Indiana Jones came from. They sat at the beach and talked about this guy who, like James Bond, could wear a tuxedo. 
and have all of these ad- adventures. But then they realize that there's no way, you know, we want to be in a situation where we want to c- control this and no studio will give us that level of control so that they walked around to all of these companies saying that George and I each want to own 20% of this film. We'll not take a fee up front, but we want 20% of the ticket sales, 20% of the back end, 20% of the merch sales. And everybody said no except Michael Eisner. He was the one guy who looked at the script, who read the, the thing and said, okay, I can make this work. I can go to my company and, you know, Paramount will make this. So they, they did. Lucas had this relationship with Eisner, you know, felt like, well, he owed him. That's one of the reasons he continued after Ron Miller was pushed out. And that was kind of a, an issue with George, because he'd started working with Ron, he was initially kind of upset about Ron being pushed out. He eventually came around. Not to say that he and Eisner had a great, lasting, long working relationship. One of the reasons that we went from January of 1987 to May of 2011 before we got a brand new Star Wars film. Originally, the plan was every three years there'd be a new movie. That's right. That's what I thought I'd heard uh, growing up, that there should be a new episode roughly every three years. Yeah, every every three years. One of the reasons that didn't happen was that George and Michael had a real falling out, and Lucas basically walked away from Disney for the longest time. This is their first initial conversation. So so what are we going to do? You know, they wanted to do something significant. They wanted to do something that would really give people a one-of-a-kind Star Wars experience. So, in the parks. In the parks. So this was going to be a roller coaster, an indoor roller coaster. You yourself, after it had launched, would make the decision about which track you'd take. There was this killer opening moment where after you boarded the vehicle, you know, you would have come into sort of a prelude room and you basically would be in the swamps of Dagobah. Yoda would be standing, like an AA figure of Yoda would be standing off to the side and he would gesture toward your vehicle and it would rise up off of the track, seemingly. Like uh, like Luke Skywalker's X-Wing. The X-Wing from uh, the Indian Empire. And then you go basically to your load hill and as you're chugging up, these two holograms would appear and one would be Obi-Wan Kenobi who was trying to win you over to the ways of the Force and one was Darth Vader who wanted you to come over to the dark side and then you hit a button inside the ride vehicle and then depending on what the majority of the people in the ride vehicle did that was the track you followed how did this not get built this next piece of info I got straight from the late great David Mumford uh, who was one of the key Imagineers for the sort of the second generation of Imagineers for this sort of the second flowering of the parks. Everyone agreed it was a great idea. The problem was when they handed it off to the development people, they were like, okay, so between having to develop this track switch to go through the necessary safety checks and then to actually farm this out to somebody who's going to build it, we can do this in-house, but it'll get expensive. They figured it was going to be five years. And it was just one of these situations where it's like, look, we, we don't have five years, especially now with Michael Eisner having just come through the door, who's beating us up about we need to make these, this place more appealing to teenagers. He's the guy who got them to build Videopolis in 120 days. You know, going to him and say, hey, in five years, you'll have something killer, just was not going to work. This was when you know, the imaginator sort of said, we have this technology we've been looking at. It, it literally is a ride system without a story to tell. We found this stuff that the Ready Fusion Company has built. It's basically a pilot simulator, this motion-based simulator. What the Imagineers proposed, the ones that have been built to date, 
are strictly one, two, maybe three or four passenger. You know, because if you think about a giant jet and the fact that, you know, those jets that fly overseas, they not only have the two, the pilot and the co-pilot, but they're backups. But that's all they were ever built for. And so the Imagineers were like, what if we were to, say, take the base and then craft a vehicle that could ride on that base. They actually built one out of plywood. Okay, so the the simulator is essentially a giant shoebox on four pneumatic legs, right? That's it, exactly. And what they eventually built out of plywood was this vehicle that they could put eight rows of seats in that would seat five people across, so they could get a capacity of of 40 people. You would sit inside of this and you could sort of stare at a screen and tour the universe and and maybe tour the Star Wars universe. So they work up four pieces of art and call George down and lay the four pieces of art on the table, explain the technology to them. And George looks at it and it's like, this is pretty passive. It's a cool technology. Wouldn't it be better if you had, say, a tour guide, like a robot who was flying this thing? You know, and George is actually the guy who's pitching that you move the screen a foot further out and you put an AA figure in there who can then turn and interact with the audience. What was the original pilot's name? There was Crazy Larry. Lucas was the guy that came up with that idea. Lucas is the one who came In fact, a lot of what made Star Wars work was George. One of my favorite things about the original Star Tours, after you boarded it, you, you then started to chug toward the launch window. And George was the one who said, look, we have to throw them off. We can't let them know what they're on yet. For the first 30 seconds of that ride, it deliberately moves like it's Mr. Toad's wild ride. It's the feel that you're on a buzz bar. You're on a track. And it's only when you break through that wall and go over the side, you get the whole pitch and yaw thing. Right. So you tilt down, you tilt up, things start to flash, right? That's, that's, uh, that's Lucas as well? That's Lucas as well. I mean, so much of what made this ride great is George. This is a great story, and there's a lot more to tell. But yeah, we've got about uh, we've got about five minutes here. So how about this? Why don't we hold that chunk for our next chronological Disneyland? Uh, I think that's a great idea. It's uh, it's funny. I was reading the uh, the New York Times a few days ago, and they had this interesting article. I'm I'm not sure whether I entirely agree with it or not, but it was it was this. George Lucas is one of the few creators of a franchise who is not the best caretaker of that franchise. Isn't, isn't that an interesting idea? It does speak volumes. But when Lucas had the initial conversation with Iger, was the one who broached the idea that if you ever were thinking to sell, it was 2011. Uh, you know, as, as they were opening, Star Wars The Adventures continues. They didn't actually sign the deal to 2012, but George went back, thought about it, and was like, well, I am thinking of retiring. And he actually put a lot of effort into taking the outlines that he'd previously written for the, the next three Star Wars films. I remember when Empire was released in Time magazine, there was a story where Lucas revealed that this isn't just a sequel or a trilogy. This is, in his mind, it was going to be nine films. I think everyone everyone who follows the films knows that it was supposed to be nine, because Lucas said it after the, the first three, and that was, that was kind of amazing, like after episode three came out, after the, the sixth film was done you know when lucas was saying 
no, that's it. There aren't going to be any more. It's like, well, no, you've you've said there were nine. Why why aren't there nine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've you've already said there. Are, you, you know that there are three more in your head. How is this? How is this the end? Right. That's right. You you, you have said is that. I think part of it was that when episodes one, two, and three came out, the uh, the third, fourth, uh, sorry, the fourth, fifth, and sixth films in the in the movies, George Lucas got such criticism of his handling of the movies and the characters and the plot and the dialogue Mm -hmm. that it was an open question as to whether in his mind he wanted to go through that entire process three more times after this again i think he was just done yeah and certainly the fact that the internet had sort of risen up and that you now had this opportunity to immediately let george know so he preps the outlines which according to friends who've actually eyeballed these things it's very much Anakin Skywalker revisited a very young, I mean, we're talking under 10-year-old protagonists. And yes, some of the, you know, he'd already reached out to Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and let them know that he wanted them to return to be part of these next three. That was before he sold the company off to Disney. But Disney got these outlines and looked at them and went, they waited to when they completed the deal to basically say, you know, George, we're going another way. We're, uh, we're, we're going in another direction. We're, uh, we're bringing up another catcher. It's probably not going to work out. Part of that deal basically made George the largest individual shareholder because I think uh, Steve Jobs' widow, I think the, the, all of the shares that he owned of Disney and Pixar uh, reverted to a corporation. Disney's been having these conversations with George about just... Be supportive. Yeah, look, just support it. Disney basically became George's mother. It's like, if you can't say something nice, you know, so just know this, that the, the trilogy we're about to see, the installment number one, Force Awakens, this isn't what George wanted to do. I think uh, I think I'm actually okay with that. I think a lot of people are actually okay with that. Yeah. I trust J.J. Abrams, and I think, I think it's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll talk further about this in a couple of days, right? Right. Uh, so, just as a quick preview for everyone, uh, Jim, you're you're actually flying out today for a preview of the film that uh, that you're going to share with us. Well, I, not flying, driving. I'm going down to Boston, where the Disney's security for this thing. Yeah, it's just incredible, right? Normally, if I go to a Disney press reading, I'm allowed to bring a guest, which means Nancy goes with me. But in this case, it was like. You yourself can come. And we're going to need a DNA swab before you go in. They wouldn't even tell me what theater it was being presented in till today. Less than 24 hours notice. Evidently, they don't want people to, to be able to get into the venue ahead of time. So so what'd they say? It's uh, it's in Massachusetts. Come on down. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Somewhere in the Bay State. It's, it's, it's within Boston. It's within the Boston city limits. I'm lucky. It's one of those smaller states. I mean, you know. You could drive across it within a few hours. Yeah, you know, it's... Somewhere in Texas. Be ready. At least be happy they didn't uh, put a bag over your head and drive you there, because that would have been awkward. Given the week I'm having, that's entirely possible. <laughs> All right, so we'll talk about that within a day or so. Sounds like a plan. All right, you've been, you've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously, I might add, by one Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.